I think it was about 11 years ago, maybe a little more, I went to Nashville with my guitar in hand and a stack of tapes with some outstanding original songs <laughs> and got the door slammed in my face. I fully expected or at least had hoped and prayed that uh, the Lord would open some doors for me to be able to get involved with music up there. I felt like that's what the Lord wanted me to do. And it was, but not in Nashville. And I didn't understand that. So I came back to Denton with my tail between my legs uh, saying, Lord, why? You know, I thought you wanted this to happen and it didn't happen. And so I didn't understand. Well, two months later after I got back from uh, my exile from Nashville, I met uh, Kathy Music. It was her maiden name. Music was clue number one. This is probably the one for me. And uh, we got married the, the year after that. I started seminary the year after that. And a couple years after that, I began working here in the music area in 1990. And looking back, I can see that if God had given me what I wanted so badly when I went to Nashville, I mean, I just couldn't understand it. I figured this was it. I couldn't understand why God didn't answer my prayers. See, they can't understand it either. They're moaning about it. Well, that's how I felt. Even the kids. And uh, looking back, if God had given me what I wanted so badly, I probably wouldn't have met Kathy. I wouldn't have gone to seminary. I wouldn't have met all you wonderful people. And as far as a vocation, which is kind of why I went to Nashville. I didn't go there looking for a wife. I went there looking for the vocation, I thought. I wouldn't have been standing here where I am today. Because what God did is he tricked me into preaching. Because he got me into the church through music, which I have a love for, but he also fostered through that a love for teaching the Bible that I didn't even know I had. And so I see how God was using the very desires that he had given me in music to lead me to something else that I had a stronger desire for, but I didn't know it. So we see that even when God slams the doors, he's sovereign. And we can't understand why he tells us no to something he's given us the desire for. He's sovereign. Because he keeps secrets about the future. This is what Joseph probably had a hard time understanding. He knew that God had chosen him to be a ruler of some kind over his brothers. And yet his brothers sold him into slavery. That's door slam number one. And he just begins to rise in prominence as the head slave of, the, of Potiphar. And he gets wrongfully accused, even though he's been faithful, and he gets the door slammed again, and he's put in prison. Well, he just starts to rise in prominence in prison, and he gets put in charge of the butler and the baker who come into the prison. They both have dreams. He interprets the dreams. It goes well for the butler. He says, hey, butler, remember me. I shouldn't even be in this prison. Remember me when you get into Pharaoh's presence. And the door slammed again because the, the butler forgets it. Poor Joseph. He's probably wondering, God, what are you thinking? Here it's been now some 13 years he's been in Egypt with one door slamming after another 
in his face. And for what? Because he's been faithful. But you think about it. I think we mentioned this last week. If the butler had mentioned to Pharaoh about Joseph, right after he interpreted the dream, and Joseph had gotten out right away, what would have happened? Well, at best, he would have simply been a free man. But since God let that last door slam, and Joseph waited another two years, he would be released not just as a free man, but now he would be released as the, the vice president, you might say, of all of the nation of Egypt. So we see that God is sovereign, even in the slamming of the doors. Let's look together in Genesis 41. The story really gets good, I guess you could say, now, because Joseph gets out of jail free, passes go, and collects a whole lot more than $200. Genesis 41 has a whole lot of text in it, and so what I want to do is simply read like about the first half and make a few comments as we kind of get the flow, the feeling of the story. Then we'll finish reading it. I'll skip some verses that are a little redundant. I hesitate to say that about inspired scripture. But we can uh, summarize them and get out of them uh, what I'd like us to focus on. Genesis 41, we'll start in verse 1. Remember, we looked at this last week. It happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer, here's the butler, spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, let's stop there for a second. 
Did you know that not one psychic predicted Princess Di's death? In fact, they predicted just the opposite for her. The London Mirror, as it is called, predicted that she would have a baby girl from her current relationship. She didn't. Another psychic used tarot cards to say that uh, another man, yet another man, was going to come into the princess' life. It didn't happen. A psychic named Maureen Conway, two years ago, she predicted that uh, Princess Di would marry two more times, once to an Englishman and once to an American. Didn't happen. Nobody saw it coming. They couldn't tell the future. The magicians of today are just as clueless as the magicians of the time of Pharaoh. And the time of Pharaoh, they even had a dream to work off of. And they couldn't figure it out, what the dream meant. And then, all of a sudden, the butler's memory comes back to him. Oh, yeah, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. And uh, he asked that I mention him to you, so I will. (laughs) Now, two years too late, or two years really on time in, in God's eyes. But he tells him about Joseph, and they run to get Joseph. And boy, don't you know, that was an exciting day for Joseph. No time to think about what he's going to say, mind you. They hurriedly got him. And they shaved him, changed his clothes. And before you know it, he's standing before the king of the whole nation. And the king is saying to him, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, you heard wrong. I can't do it. But God can. That's the same thing he told the butler and the baker last week. He says, it's not me. The interpretations belong to God. And he told them last week, he told them their dreams. One for life, one for death. And in a sense, that kind of anticipates Pharaoh's dreams. Because these these good cows and these bad cows represent life and death. These good ears and the bad ears of corn represent life and death. And he tells Joseph the dream. We're not going to read verse 17 down through 24. Pharaoh basically tells him the dream that we've already read. And now in verse 25, Joseph interprets it for him. Tells him what this funny dream means. Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. And now, let Pharaoh look for a man, discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land, for the seven years of famine will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish during the famine. Now, 
the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put the gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, not one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonat Paniah, and he gave him Asina, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember how old he was when he came to Egypt? He was 17. Now he's 30. For 13 years, God has prepared this young man for this day and for the years that are about to follow. Pharaoh named him this Egyptian name, Zaphonatpaniah. It means uh, God speaks and lives. How'd you like to have that for a name? God speaks and lives. Come to supper. <laughs> and he marries this daughter of this pagan priest. Incidentally, there was a novel written some centuries after this uh, called Joseph and Asenat, the husband and the wife. And in that novel, based on tradition, uh, it says that this lady came to faith in the one true God because of Joseph's example. And so Joseph does what he has given the Pharaoh the, the counsel to do. Uh, they select him to be over the whole land. And he, starting in verse 47, we'll skip a few verses. Joseph does just what he suggested as any wise person will do. In fact, I think we even use Joseph here as the example in our series on money regarding saving. You, uh, you save during the time of extra, anticipating the time of lack, and then you guard it. Just like they did. You guard it. You don't dip into it for the, the daily needs. You dip into it for the time of lack. Okay, now starting in verse uh, 50. We'll just read three more verses. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God's made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And then the rest of the chapter, we won't read, but it talks about the time that the famine came and they were prepared, Joseph had saved all the grain and all the land, all the rest of the earth came to Joseph because the famine was so bad. And we're going to see next week that that's going to include his brothers coming to him for grain, though they don't know it's him. So that'll be, that'll be good. But for today, how can we apply this chapter? 
What do you do when your dreams come true? You might say, well, I don't know. They haven't. Well, bear with me. Think about this. In the life of Joseph, promotions, they require no less faithfulness than afflictions do. Or said, perhaps in another way, we know we're supposed to be faithful in afflictions. But like the film clip showed us, even if you get to be king, you're not above the code. You're still to be faithful. And that's what Joseph was. I think that wealth is every bit the test that poverty is. And maybe just a little more. I think Joseph was tested just as much to trust in God being a very rich man as he was a very poor man. Because a rich man, he doesn't perceive that he has any needs. I mean, why trust God for my daily bread? I've got enough money to buy anything I want. Think about Joseph. How many people do you know? A 30-year-old man. Think of somebody 30 years old that you know. How many people 30 years old who are intelligent, as Joseph was, who are good-looking, as Joseph was, who are strong, as Joseph was, undoubtedly 13 years of labor, and now who are very rich? How many people do you know that have this kind of qualities and to come into this kind of money that would remain faithful to God. And yet we know that Joseph did it. He was standing there in front of the king of the whole nation. It would have been a wonderful time for him to say, yeah, I can interpret your dream. Lay it on me. But he didn't. He told Pharaoh, look at the screen, these few verses. He says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He says, God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the matter is determined by God. And God will quickly bring it about. You see, every time this kid opens his mouth, he's talking about God. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Potiphar's wife tried to put the moves on him? What was his response? He refused and then he said, why? It'd be a great sin against God. Last week, when the butler and the baker had the problem that we needed the dreams interpreted, he said, do not interpretations belong to God? And now, standing before the king of the whole nation, he says, God, five times. He doesn't refer to himself, but to God. You say, well, yeah, but that was before he was successful. What about after he was successful? Well, even seven years into his success where the nation was producing all this grain, and he was lauded as a hero, and he had a wife now, and he had two sons, even after of seven years of success, and living now in Egypt for 20 years, speaking Egyptian, the, the Egyptian language for 20 years, he names his sons by Hebrew names. Ephraim and Manasseh are Hebrew. You see, he had not abandoned his faith. He knew what it was that brought him to where he was. And he didn't abandon it, even though he was successful. He named his firstborn, we're told in verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, named the second Ephraim. Manasseh talks about being forgetful. He who brings into forgetfulness. And he explains what he means. And God has helped him to forget all his trouble and all his father's house. It doesn't mean that he forgot his father's house. He's referring to the pain of his father's house. 
You know, I can think back in times in my life where I have hurt so bad that I didn't think I would ever heal. And yet I can truly stand before you today and say that particular instances I've, that come to my mind where I thought I would never heal, I don't hurt at all from those anymore. In fact, in a strange way, I'm glad I went through that pain because God's made me a little smarter now by His grace. And Joseph, he gives God the glory and he names his firstborn son off, off the fact that God has helped him to forget all the pain of his affliction and all the pain that his family has caused him, Manasseh. And he named his secondborn son Ephraim, which means fruitfulness. Not only has God helped him to forget, God's caused him to be fruitful in the land of his affliction. So even as he names his children, he's giving glory to God. This guy who's been out of the land of Canaan for 20 years now. You see, promotions require no less faithfulness than afflictions. Jesus said, uh, speaking to, of a rich man, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Because the rich man doesn't perceive he has any needs. But he does. I read in Billy Graham's uh, autobiography, he was a very young man when he came into fame. Uh, very young. And he said that he, he and his wife had just begun one of their worldwide crusades and was still very young in his ministry. And he walked outside his hotel room and all of a sudden all these cameras started flashing around him. And uh, they were taking pictures of him. They were asking him questions. They were writing down his every word. And he said, he said, I just had to keep telling myself over and over in my mind, to you be the glory, Lord, to you be the glory. Not me, to you be the glory. Because it would be hard. Think about being such a young person thrust into the limelight like that, like he was. He just had to keep telling himself, this is not me. This is God they're applauding. God has put me here. I've heard it, the statement said, you want to dance with the one that brought you. You come to the dance. You want to dance with the one that brought you. You don't be brought by George and dance with Bill. You dance with George. The idea being, faithfulness to God is not a ladder that takes you up to success. And once you get up to success, you can kick that ladder off. Say, all right, Lord, I don't need you anymore. Thanks for getting me here. For Joseph, he kept at it. He was still faithful. So what do you do when your dreams come true? You hang on to that which helped your dreams come true. What do you do when God mightily blesses your life? You don't abandon Him, figuring you don't need Him anymore. You stay faithful to Him. Joseph was the exact same person in the prison that he was in the palace. Exact same as a poor man as he was with a rich man. You would say, well, yeah, that's great. But I'm not rich, and so I have no idea what you're talking about. I want to challenge that, if you're thinking that. I know I initially thought that about this. I thought, you know, I'd like to struggle with riches, but uh, I'm not. And then I got to thinking. You know, we may not in our culture look very rich, but in the eyes of humanity, we are very, very rich. If you ever go down to Old Mexico, you'll see this real quickly. 
When I went to Russia, I saw this. Poverty everywhere. You get outside of Moscow, poverty is everywhere. It's sad. You can see how the government poured all their money into their military. And the people were just, uh, the people, people didn't get any of it. Poverty everywhere. And I came back and I felt guilty for living in the neighborhood that I live. I live in a, an average house. It's a brick house. It's got grass. It's got air conditioning. But it's average. No, it's below average. You think about the square footage. <laughs> but I'm rich compared to most other human beings as far as material blessings. You know, I read a couple of weeks ago that the United States has, uh, the United States, the world has 210 countries in it. And what we spend in trash bags exceeds the gross national product of 90 countries. What we spend in going out to eat exceeds the gross national product of 200 countries. And there's only 210. We are a rich people. Even materially. And if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, then my friend, your bank account is as full as it gets spiritually. We're told in the book of Ephesians that God has blessed the Christian with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Spiritually, if you are a believer, you are loaded. You're rich. Spiritually. And yet, what's the temptation of a rich kid that has a father who has everything? You know, my father's got everything. I don't have to be responsible with the finances now or with the way I spend. Because no matter what I spend, daddy's got it covered. Same temptation is for those of us who are Christians. To look at God the Father and his marvelous grace, his, his unconditional love that's forgiven me of all my sins and all the sins that I ever will commit. So hey, Jesus has got it covered. I can sin all I want. I can be as irresponsible with my spiritual blessings as I want. You could. But do we want to do that? You want to dance with the one that brought you. You want to stay faithful even though you are rich materially and even though you are rich spiritually. Stay faithful. Secondly, and this is the last thing because to me, this is really the takeaway. Success starts with the little things. Success starts with the little things. The butler told Pharaoh, Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. Now how is that the little things? I'll tell you. Because Joseph had no idea that this guy's dream wasn't going to turn out just like the baker. He didn't know. When he said, sure, I'll interpret your dream. He was willing to be faithful even though he had no idea that both of these guys wouldn't get hanged. He was faithful as a prisoner interpreting the dream of a felon just as faithful as he was interpreting in the palace interpreting the dream of a pharaoh. He's faithful with little things. Little insignificant duty in a prison, in a dungeon. He was faithful. Just like he was faithful in the palace. 
Joseph's life, we think about it, it was a series of 180 degree turns. One day he is a rich, favored son. The next day he is strapped to a cart headed to Egypt. One day he is the head servant in this prestigious house. The next day he's in prison. One day he's in prison. The next day he's vice president of the whole nation. Talk about the extremes that this guy had in his life. And yet with all these 180 degrees that happened over the course of a day in each of them, Joseph was faithful. The Lord Jesus, he said it like this in Luke chapter 16. He said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. You just turn up the proportions. And then a few chapters later, same book, he's telling a parable, and he says, He said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. You say, Well, I want to be in authority over ten cities now. I want the big things now. Jesus said, If you're not faithful with the little things, you're not going to be faithful with the big things. And taking off the second line here, why would God give you ten cities if you're not faithful with one? Success starts with the little things. Big things are made up of little things. Without the penny, we don't have a dollar. The big things are made up of little things. In the book of Proverbs, there's a guy called the sluggard. You ever heard of him? He's a lazy guy. That's what the sluggard means. The idea of a slug goes real slow. The sluggard is lazy. And his rationale, he says that his life is destroyed. It's suddenly ruined. And you know why his life is suddenly ruined? Because for years his mindset was, well, just a little sleep. Just a little slumber. Just a little folding of the hands to rest. That's not a big deal. Just a little but the little things add up to where one day, boom, it says poverty comes on you like a bandit. In the Song of Solomon, we're told it's the little foxes that you want to catch that are destroying the vineyard. The idea there in a, in a marriage or in a, a courting relationship, you want to take care of those little things because those little things can add up to be big things. And our temptation so often is to not give importance to the little things because after all, they're just little. You look at the life of Joseph and you think, if you're looking just from a purely worldly point of view, that this guy's God must be the devil because he's faithful and bad stuff happens to him. For 13 years, that's what happened. Joseph was faithful and yet bad stuff kept happening to him. And you know what? In God's eyes, Joseph was just as much a success doing that little insignificant job in the prison as he was ruling the whole nation because he was faithful. Now, I want to ask you, what is it that you do that's insignificant? What is it that you do? Perhaps you... Perhaps you go to a job and push papers all week 
at a no-name company for a meager salary, or perhaps you stay home and you fight kids all day long, and you wash the same dishes and change the same sheets over and over and over. How insignificant in the eyes of the world. Or maybe you, you serve in some capacity. You volunteer in some organization or you serve here in the church in some behind-the-scenes way that nobody sees. Nobody thanks you. And we're tempted to think because these things are so behind the scenes or so insignificant or because I don't make a lot of money that it's not that big a deal. I don't have to be faithful in the little things. Because after all, if I screw up in the little things, the world still turns. Nobody really even seems to notice if I do it wrong because it's not that significant. We get something different from the life of Joseph. That the little things are important. When I was in college, I learned a valuable lesson, not only about <clears throat> playing the guitar, but also about life. My guitar teacher said that when I was trying to learn a very hard line of music, and you had to play it real quickly, and I was having trouble with it, and he says, look, the way you learn this is you slow it down. Take it to barely any tempo at all. Take it real slowly, but play it perfectly. And do that a hundred times. Don't speed it up at all. Play it slowly a hundred times. To where you playing that line, it just becomes your fingers are just like a machine. You don't even have to think about it. It just happens. That way, all you've got to do is just turn up the machine. And all of a sudden, you can play that hard line fast. Play it quickly. But the temptation that I fell into was becoming impatient. See, I didn't like sitting in the, the little practice room or in my dorm room and practicing this thing real slowly. It wasn't supposed to be played slowly. <clears throat> it was supposed to be played quickly. And I wanted to play it quickly. And so oftentimes I'd shortcut myself and I'd play it quickly. Well, you know, guess what happened come, come showtime where I'm not playing by myself now but in front of other people. I fold. I blew it. Because I didn't do it slowly. I wasn't faithful with the little things. And so many times in our lives, the, 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 the lesson that transfers from that to me in my life is that we want to say, hey, forget the slow, difficult development that has to happen in private. Forget the little things. That doesn't matter. What matters is, Lord, give me something big. Give me something with notoriety. Give me something successful. And then it's important that I be faithful. But if you are waiting for God to give you something big before you think faithfulness is important, then you may, may be forever waiting. Because notice the master in this parable said, because you've been faithful in very little thing, be an authority over ten cities. Jesus said, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with a lot. So you're deceiving yourself to think, well, it doesn't matter now when I get to be a success or I get to make more money or whenever something else happens in the future that's more significant, then it's important that I be successful. Wrong. It's important that you be faithful right where you are now. Right now. 
wherever God has put you, whatever little insignificant thing you're doing, that is where you're to be faithful. Don't wait for tomorrow. Faithful right where God has put you. So what do you do when you're successful? Well, spiritually, those who've placed their faith in Jesus, you are successful. You are rich. And even in the eyes of all mankind, we're rich. What should we do? We should stay faithful, not abandon God. Remember to stay faithful with the little things because they matter. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I don't know what it is except pride, perhaps, that we are discontent with serving you faithfully in the little things. Sure, when everybody's looking, we'll do a good job. When everybody's looking, we'll be patient. When it seems to be a big thing, we'll be faithful. But the little things, Lord, help us to be faithful there too. You think of Joseph, how he was faithful in the pit and how he was faithful in the palace. It's the same man, just faithful. Help us, Lord, today to be like Joseph. Help us to be like the Lord Jesus who was willing to have very little as far as money goes, but he was faithful. So faithful even to death on a cross. Therefore you exalted him above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, you exalt those who are faithful with the little things. Help us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We're dismissed.